few weeks ago, the paper said some normality by May. That would be nice, wouldn't it? Life to have some normality. Uh, maybe not total normality, but we'd settle with a little bit, wouldn't we? We long for things to return. And it's not just us being sentimental, um, wanting things to be how they used to be, some kind of rose-tinted spectacles. No, lockdown life is rubbish. And anyone who can remember life more than a year ago longs for it. We want some normality, don't we? But with every passing week, it gets a bit harder to remember what normality used to be like. But we don't really want to think about what the post-pandemic world might entail. We just want the pre-pandemic world, don't we? Who else um, here dislikes that phrase that we sometimes hear, the new normal? No, we don't want the new normal. We want the old proper normal, don't we? We long for things to return to how they were. No restrictions, no masks, and give me a cheer, no Zoom. How we love to be able to see family, to see friends, to go to restaurants and coffee shops, to go to the cinema, maybe even a foreign holiday. We long for things to return, don't we? Well, the people of Joel's prophecy, they longed for things to return as well. And over the past two weeks, we've heard how the people suffered a great plague of locusts. Excuse the pun, but this was an invasion of biblical proportions. Complete devastation. The locusts were like an invading army, invading everywhere and everything. Nothing could stop them. Crops vanished. The land, the land was destroyed. People starved. Livelihoods were shattered. And the people wept and wailed. In chapter one, there was nothing they could do. They were powerless. Even the priests didn't have anything to sacrifice in the temple. The people could only cry out to God for mercy. It was all down to God. And then last week, Anne showed us some signs of hope. In chapter 2, verse 13, Return to the Lord your God, for he is gracious and compassionate slow to anger and abounding in love, and he relents from sending calamity. There were signs of hope. God was their hope. His character was their hope. The Lord is gracious and compassionate. The Lord is slow to anger and abounding in love. The Lord is the one who relents from sending calamity, and the Lord is their God. But even then, verse 14, who knows, he may turn and relent and leave behind a blessing. Even then, it was only a sign of hope. It wasn't a certainty. Yes, the Lord is able. He's able to do all this. He's able to remove the locust invasion and to regrow the crops. In fact, the only way that life can return is if God does something. It's all down to him. The Lord is able, only he is able but it's still only a maybe. Who knows, he may turn and relent. He can, but will he? Who knows? You see, the people have been completely humbled. They have no certainty. They realize that God doesn't owe them anything. It's only a maybe. I wonder, uh, what about us? 
we know our God is able, don't we? He's the Lord God Almighty. He's the creator of heaven and earth. He's the, the sustainer of the universe. God is able. He can do whatever he desires. We pray to him knowing he can. But how often do we pray wondering if he will? Who knows? He may turn and answer our prayer. Who knows? He may remove the virus and return life to normal. Who knows? He may heal that cancer. We pray, but who knows what will happen? Well, God has instructed his people to return to him in humility. He instructs the people of Joel's day and he instructs us as well. And now in today's passage, we find out what will happen. Verse 18, then the Lord was jealous for his land and took pity on his people. Phew, the Lord is coming. The Lord is coming to rescue his people after all. And as we read on for the rest of verse 19 and 20, we hear that the Lord is going to drive the horde of locusts away. Some of them are gonna end up in a dry and barren land. You could say the punishment fits the crime and the rest are going to end up in the surrounding seas to the east and to the west. And he's then going to send enough food to satisfy the people. The crops will return, their lives will resume. They're gonna be okay after all. Verse 21, so do not be afraid, land of Judah. Be glad and rejoice. Surely the Lord has done great things. There's rejoicing. The fields are turning green. The threshing floors will fill with grain. The vats will overflow with new wine and oil. Normality is returning. Isn't that a cause for rejoicing, for celebration? And it's all because the Lord is jealous for his land and took pity on his people. The Lord is jealous. The Lord took pity. Now that word jealous, it sounds a bit strange, doesn't it, when used in relation to God? Jealousy is a bad thing. How can God be jealous? And how can God being jealous be a good thing? Well, God's jealousy is a bit like, uh, it's a bit like a married woman seeing her husband flirting with another woman. We consider that righteous jealousy, wouldn't we? Marriage is an exclusive relationship between two people. A wife wants to protect her marriage, so she rightly rejects anything that may compromise it. And there's a similar jealousy in a husband being jealous for his wife's reputation because he cares for her and wants his wife to be rightly honored. You see, throughout the Old Testament, God's relationship with his people is described as a marriage relationship. And that's why it's so important we understand what marriage really is. If we get that wrong, well, we'll get our relationship with God wrong. And that's a huge danger, isn't it? Well, in verse 23, God gives another reason for his return and his rejoicing. He says, be glad, people of Zion. Rejoice in the Lord your God, for he has given you the autumn rains because he is faithful. 
He sends you abundant showers, both autumn and spring rains as before. You see, it's down to God's faithfulness. He is faithful. He can be relied upon, depended upon. And again, this is relational language, isn't it? The Lord is the faithful husband to Israel. And as Christians, we know that Jesus is the faithful husband to the church. It's our relationship with Jesus that matters. It's like a marriage. It's that close. Well, Joel continues in his message from God. And actually, it's better than just a return to normality. Verse 25, he says, I will repay you for the years the locusts have eaten. The great locust and the young locust, the other locusts and the locust swarm, my great army that I sent among you. God is going to repay his people for the damage that the locusts caused. I will repay you for the years the locusts have eaten. See, the locusts' devastation lasted years. When an entire season's crop is wiped out, it takes years to get things back to normal. Years to build up enough grain, both to eat and also to sow for the next year. It takes time to build up enough spare grain. And during that time, the people continued to suffer. But I will repay you for the years the locusts have eaten. God is going to repay his people for all those years. All those years of hopes and dreams dashed in only a few hours and days as the locusts swept across the land, devouring everything in their path. The great locusts and the young locusts, the other locusts and the locust swarm. God is going to repay his people. And that's what God is like. He sees his people suffering. It doesn't go unnoticed. How we long to hear God say, I will repay you for the years that COVID has eaten. I will repay you for the years that social distancing has eaten. I will repay you for the years you weren't educated, for the years you were made redundant. I will repay you for the years you were kept from your family. I will repay you for not being able to say goodbye to your loved one. But it's not just the pandemic. I will repay you for the years that depression has eaten for the years that cancer has eaten. I will repay you for the years that dementia and Parkinson's have eaten. I will repay you for the years that adultery has eaten, for the years that divorce and family breakdown have eaten, for the fraud, for the unwanted singleness, for the years of childlessness. I will repay you, says the Lord. Doesn't that give you hope? The Lord sees. The Lord knows. The Lord will make up for the heartache that we experience. Isn't that wonderful? And why does God do this? Well, at the end of verse 26, he says, Never again will my people be shamed. Then you will know that I am in Israel, that I am the Lord your God, and that there is no other. Never again will my people be shamed. Did you spot the reason? God does all this, removing his people's shame. So then you will know that I am in Israel, that I am the Lord your God and that there is no other. You see, God has not abandoned his people. He is still in their midst. 
God's relationship with his people has not changed since it started. They are still married to him. And God is the only God there is. No other God exists. You see, the people's hope is not in themselves. That's what was reinforced in chapter one. The people's hope and our hope as well is only in God. It's in God alone, in Jesus Christ alone. Only when we give up trying and let God do we have any hope. You see, as human beings, we wander off, we change, we're merely creatures. That's why Jesus often refers to us as sheep. But God is God. He is faithful. He is with his people. He alone is God. And that's why he'll not just return us to how things are, but he'll repay us as well. It's all because of who God is. It's all because of God. But God being God and God being jealous for his people and being gracious and compassionate and being faithful, God doesn't even stop there. Verse 28. And afterwards I will pour out my spirit on all people. Your sons and daughters will prophesy, your old men will dream dreams, your young men will see visions. Even on my servants, both men and women, I will pour out my spirit in those days. You see, after God has dealt with the locusts, his people aren't just restored and repaid. He goes beyond what they've ever experienced before beyond what they even thought was possible. I will pour out my spirit. God's gonna give his spirit to people and all kinds of people, men and women, young and old, free people and slaves and servants as well. You see, up until this point, God only gave his spirit to particular people at particular times for particular purposes, like the judges, or King David or King Saul. It was limited and it wasn't permanent. God took his um, spirit away from Saul. But Joel looks forward to a day when God's spirit is gonna be poured out. He's gonna dwell within his people, not just beside, but inside, closer than any other relationship. And that's why we celebrate Pentecost when Jesus sent his spirit. It's going to be so much better. With the Lord, it is better than just a return to normality. Now, I don't know about you, but at this stage with the pandemic, I'd even settle for less than normal. A little bit of normal would go a long way. But that's not how God works. God always does more. God never disappoints and his salvation is so much better. We settle for less when God wants to lavish his love upon us. C.S. Lewis describes it like this. We are half-hearted creatures fooling around with drink and sex and ambition when infinite joy is offered us. Like an ignorant child who wants to go on making mud pies in a slum because he cannot imagine what is meant by the offer of a holiday at the sea. We are far too easily pleased. With God, it is so much better. The good news, we know it's like a treasure in a field, don't we? 
it's worth selling everything for, or the pearl of great price, it's worth giving up everything for. God is so much better. So how is your view of God? Do you expect God to be average? Do you worry that you're going to be disappointed by him? Do you sometimes feel that non-Christians have it so much easier? Well, the good news of the gospel is that it's always so much better with God. Because it's all to do with God and not to do with us. We disappoint ourselves. Other people disappoint us. But God won't. You see, only when we focus on God, only when we focus on him, will not be disappointed. It's because our salvation is not down to us. We can do nothing. It's all down to him. So how do we gain it? Well, verse 32. And everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. For on Mount Zion and in Jerusalem there will be deliverance, as the Lord has said, even among the survivors whom the Lord calls. Everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. Everyone who does that, that's all we have to do. Just call out, cry out, like we're crying out to Jesus, and he'll protect us, he'll deliver us, he'll rescue us. Salvation is just a matter of asking him. There's no exams, no visa, no charges, no fee. We just need to ask him, and then he'll deliver us from evil, and he'll pour out the blessing of his spirit. Isn't this the good news of the gospel? God has not changed. The God of the Old Testament is the same as the God of the New Testament. This is the hope that we have in Jesus. So let's rejoice. Let's be glad in him. Let's praise him for what he's doing, even in these awkward times of pandemic, knowing that actually our future with God will be so much better. So let's pray. And let's praise him for that. Heavenly Father, thank you so much. I thank you, Father, that you don't just return things to normal. You don't just repay us for the difficulties that we experience. But Father, you go above and beyond. That you pour out your spirit. You pour out yourself upon us when we put our trust in you. And Father, we don't have to do anything to earn that. We just have to cry out to you, Father. That is amazing. That's beyond our comprehension. We're so used, Father, in this world to trying to work hard for things and in only being disappointed. But yet, Father, with you, you completely turn things on their head. We can't work for you. We just need to humbly accept you. And then we'll never be disappointed. So, Father, thank you so much for that. Lord, you are the only one who is worthy of our praise, of our glory. So, Father, we thank you and we praise you in Jesus' name. Amen.